In other words, he's refuting the concept of uniformitarianism. They're wrong when they think everything has always been the same. Everything has not always been the same. And the evidence that he uses, the first thing that it gets to is what? What's the first thing there? Anyone? What did Marcy read? Creation. He's talking about Genesis 1. Keep reading, Marcy. Verse 6. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Okay, now there's another event. So he alludes to creation, and in 2 Peter 3, he's talking about the creation that we know from Genesis 3, and what Peter could have expounded upon is that very good creation, which is radically different from the creation of the day that Peter is speaking of. So you say everything's been the same? We're talking about a radically different creation. That's what he's saying. And he's also, so the earth formed out of water, that's referring to the creation, he doesn't speak of it, but he's implying it in the next next verse that Connie read, or Marcy rather, through which the, the world at that time was destroyed. In other words, after the creation, there was also a world that was affected by a fall. He doesn't mention the fall, but we know that that fall introduced a change in the creation such that the creation is cursed. And that world degenerated, the world at that time, into the next major event, which he gets into in verse 3, which through which the world at that time was what? Destroyed. Being flooded, pataklusmas, flooded with water. He's referring to the Genesis flood. Let's chart this. We have an original creation that Peter refers to. Everything is very good. We have a radical change. So things have not always gone on as they are in the first century or even if we say the same thing in the 21st century. We have a fall. And as a result of fall, we have a cursed universe. And then we have a flood. What Peter is introducing here is the Lord or what we can introduce, is God has a will that is sovereign. Things don't happen by chance. We're living in a world that is dictated and under whatever God specifies. And there are literally hundreds of verses that we could look at. Let's just look from one passage, and then I'll allude to some other passages that we could look at if we have more time. Or you can look up on your own. Keep your finger in Second Peter. We're going to come back to that. But let's look up Psalm 104. And what I'm going to try and demonstrate, simply from Psalm 104, we might look at a couple of other passages as well, but the whole emphasis of this psalm, it deals with the natural realm. And what it's talking about is God is sovereign over different areas of the natural realm. Who's next? You're next, Connie? And why don't you look up that same passage, uh, Linda, and I'll have you read out of it as well. Then we'll come to Loretta. Psalm 104, read uh, 3 and 4. And these have eaten up for two years off the waters. Oh, can I start in two? Yeah, start in two. He wraps himself in light as the garment. He stretches up the heavens. Now, who's the heat? God. God. And as they still use his upper chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of men. He makes men his messengers, flames of fire, so. Okay. Now, this is poetic language. It's one of the Psalms, so the nature of the literature, it's poetic. 
So it's using imagery, it's using figures, and what the interpreter needs to do is figure out how do I interpret those images. In other words, how do I literally understand them? What is the author intending to communicate? What is he communicating? What is he talking about using that imagery? Now, proper hermeneutics means that we don't have the liberty to make these figures mean what, what we want. We need to seek what did the psalmist intend by using those figures. I contend he's talking about climatology and that God is sovereign over climatology. The wind, the rain, what else is noted in there? Fire, probably lightning. All right, climatology. God is sovereign over climatology. He uses it for his own purposes. Linda, do you want to read uh, 104.10 and 13? Now, you could also look up 147.8 because it is similar. And by the way, there's some passages in Job that deal with God sovereign over climatology as well. Verse 10 and then read verse 13. He turns the street. They flow between. They provide water for all the animals. Notice he does it. Referring to the same he, the same God. Keep reading. Okay, 13. Did you do that one? Okay. What he's talking about there, if you want to describe it in scientific terms, he's talking about hydrology. The whole hydrological system is under his sovereign control. The hydrological system. And what that is, is rain gathering in rivers, rivers flowing, and animals use rivers to drink from, lakes are formed where the water is used, man can utilize it, eventually runs in the ocean, evaporates, and it falls again, rain or snow. That's the hydrological system, and it's studied by scientists. In fact, as an engineer, you need to do hydrological studies in order to design streets to know how much water is going to fall in a certain area so you can design storm drains, etc., etc. And you can do all these calculations. So this is a whole area, hydrology, whole scientific endeavor, studying this whole cycle. And the point of 104, 10, and 13 is it is under God's sovereign control. God is behind it all, not just nature. Botany, similarly, we don't need to read all of these. I just want, why don't you jot these down? Verse 14 deals with God watering plants. Verse 16 also, providing everything that plants need. That's botany. Even optics, 104.20, dealing with darkness and light. God is sovereign over optics. Loretta, why don't you read 104, read 21 and 27. Psalm 104 there, same passage we're in. The young lions roar after they prayer, their prey, and seek their food from God. Who do they seek their food from? Not evolution, not nature, not the natural realm. Poetic language, but we're still talking about God is sovereign over it. That's the whole point of the song. Keep reading. Okay, number 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due seasons. Okay, where does food come from? God feeds the entire biological world, basically. Even physics, remember we looked at Romans 8, 18 through 22, that's the second law there, that God instituted it, God is sovereign over physics. 
And by the way, if you wanted to do a more extensive study, you could study all kinds of things relating to God sovereign over the created realm. We've got a whole list of things to look at. The Psalm 104, we're kind of focusing on it, where he's sovereign over inanimate nature. He's sovereign over animals as well. Uh, you could just study the history of Israel and how God has controlled environments. He has brought plagues in Egypt. Remember, God is the one that orchestrated those plagues. He's sovereign over turning the Nile into blood, bringing hail. Exactly. So he controlled every aspect of it. And other things in the history of Israel, if you study their history, God has carried out what he said in Deuteronomy 28 in terms of blessing Israel and or cursing them. So you can study the entire history of Israel and see where there were famines as a result of disobedience. There was also times of prosperity, like under Solomon, when they were somewhat walking with the Lord, where God is doing physical things. In other words, medical things, crop either failure or crop production, enemies. Deuteronomy 28 talks about enemies being subdued, depending on faithfulness there. God is orchestrating all of that. And you can go down the list. Is he still doing that? Yes, he's still doing it. Absolutely. So blessing and cursing in agriculture, in climatology, productivity of farm animals, productivity of women in terms of childbearing, medical and health issues, enemies. He's also sovereign in judgment. We'll see that through all the Bible. He's sovereign over the Genesis flood. We're going to see, go into detail, but sovereign over Sodom and Gomorrah. All of the judgments of the Old Testament. All the future judgments of the book of Revelation. God is sovereign over the created realm. The point I'm making here is what God does, he's telling us what he's going to do in the Noahic Covenant in terms of stabilizing an environment and making laws somewhat constant. So God is sovereign over his creation, not chance, there's no chance, no randomness, and in that, he has instituted radical changes, no uniformitarianism. This is what we're looking at in Second Peter. So turn back to Second Peter. Let's focus on some of these physical effects of the Genesis flood. Some of the physical effects of the Genesis flood to appreciate the Noahic covenant and the stability that God established afterwards. That's the point that I'm going to make with this slide here. Did you get that? What I'm going to give you are basically from the biblical text, what the text tells us about these physical effects. Remember I did this when we talked about the, the fall, the fall of man. Remember? The world before the fall, when everything was very good, is radically different after the fall. Similarly, after the flood... The world after the flood is radically different, and God entered into covenant, the Noahic covenant, to establish a new uniform system or a new uniform uh, environment. So what I want to give you is a series of things that the biblical text tells us, the physical effects that are radically different after the flood than before the flood. I'm going to start with geophysics, the whole area of geophysics. 
and we're going to look at the geological column. I introduced this to you a little bit when we talked about uh, the scientific argument for creationism. I told you about this column, geological column, in all of the geology books. Remember what we talked about there? Okay, review what we talked about. Each of these represents layers in the geological column. If you look up at Sandia Crest over there, the crest is a, is a very distinct rock layer, and there's a layer underneath it. And if you're perceptive, you can see other layers as well. If you were to dig, dig down somewhere in Albuquerque, down off the mountain, you would encounter some of these geological layers, because they're all over the face of the earth. I told you that nowhere on the face of the earth you have all of them together, but you have some of them in different places of the earth. I'm going to talk a little bit about this some more later as well. Anyway, I'm giving you the viewpoint that this boundary between the Cambrian and Precambrian, which at the Grand Canyon, this is about a mile below the top of the Grand Canyon, to give you a perspective of, of how large the geological layers are. Okay, we know that at the Grand Canyon. Again, it varies from location to location on the face of the earth. At the Grand Canyon, this is about a mile from here to the top of the canyon. And actually, the top of the canyon, I can't remember, it's somewhere in this area as well, or on the chart. This line between the Cambrian and the Precambrian, the creationists that I believe have good evidence, this is the boundary that separates what the flood destroyed and what basically remains pre-flood. So if you want to go and see pre-flood rock, look for Precambrian rock. That's pre-flood. And the reason for that is everything above the Precambrian, in other words, from the Cambrian up, this is all sedimentary rock, and you have the first currents of fossils. The currents of fossils are the remains of the Genesis flood. That's the viewpoint I'm giving you. So all of this is layers of rock laid back down by the Genesis flood. The point I'm making, geophysics was radically different before the flood in that the, all of these layers occurred as a result of the Genesis flood so the geological column is different than it was before the flood. We don't really know what it looked like before the flood because it's been all wiped out. And it's all been mixed. It's all been, some of it, some of the continents, the theory I gave you, have been subducted back into the mantle. Remember that chart I showed you last time? I'll show it again later. Do you have a comment? So geophysics, the, the entire geological column down to the Precambrian layer, is totally new after the flood, or as a result of the flood. So all the geophysics is different. Tectonics, the situation of continents. This is a new science, by the way, that has only blossomed in the last 40, 50 years or so. Tectonics is the study of large land masses or plates. They call them plates that kind of hold together and Tectonic plates, when two plates are close to one another and one moves slightly, quarter of an inch, you have an earthquake. Like California. It's on the San Andreas Fault. It's dividing two tectonic plates. What I'm presenting here, it appears from the Genesis record that all of the continents before the flood were different. So all of tectonics was different before the Genesis flood. Some scientists have, uh, creationists have come up with what they describe as Pangea. The 
continents before the flood may have looked something like this. Now, that's just a theory. That's, this is theoretical. It's possible that North America and Africa were joined here, South America and Africa there, Europe, up like Canada and that area, oh, they're joined together, Antarctica, Australia, India, etc., all one continent. As a result of the, remember I showed you the mid-Atlantic ridge that would be here, this split, probably splitting continents, there may have been some phenomenon in the Pacific similarly. I think I mentioned that, the Pacific Rim, such that after today we have the configuration of the continents, that's just North America, and when you have little movements like in the San Andreas Fault, you have uh, continental drift, is what they call it. After the, the effects of the flood, you'd have post-flood continental sprint, where continents are breaking apart, some of them subducting into the mantle, new continents created as a result of all of that upheaval that we talked about last time. So tectonics is different. Climatology is different. Uh, chapter 8, the last verse of chapter 8, seems to indicate, it, it at least implies, that maybe the seasons have been stabilized that are different. And I think Connie mentioned that their creationists also have what's called a canopy theory that seems to account for, in the fossil record, it seems like there were larger animals before the Genesis flood than there are today in some cases, not in all cases. In fact, you see a lot of spaces, actually. And large fern-like plants, a lot more tropical stuff, animals and plants in places they should not be, like mammoths in Siberia and very northern climates. Some creationists think that there could have been some sort of a canopy that kind of shielded the earth, creating something like a greenhouse effect, either with water vapor. Another theory is that perhaps a thick layer of carbon dioxide could do the same thing. It would shield out ultraviolet rays, which also accounts for longevity of life and other phenomenon, and also produce some of the biological phenomenon if there were some canopy. The point being is there is some evidence for a different climatology before the Genesis Flood than what, what we have today. What we have today is regulated by the Noahic Covenant. This is the point I'm making here. So seasons, actually even an ice age, there's an entire book by Michael Ord, who's a climatologist, who presents a theory as to how the ice age was formed. And really, scientists don't have a good theory as to what caused the, what they call the last ice age, which we would say the only ice age. But they believe there have been prior ice ages before the, the last ice age. And here's just a quote from a, kind of an expert in this area, Stokes, William Stokes. And he's basically summarizing all of the theories here. He's saying the underlying cause of glaciation remains in doubt. In other words, we don't know. Scientists don't know. At least 29 explanations have been advanced to account for widespread glaciation. Talk about formation of ice ages. Quote goes on, most of these had little chance of survival from the first, but others enjoyed some degree of success until they were rendered untenable by subsequent accumulated information. So he says at least 29, but none of them, none of them last. Yeah, none of them literally hold water. <laughs> I think the best theory is based on the Genesis flood, based on evidence from Scripture by Michael Ord, 
And he gives a theory of that the flood actually caused the last and or only ice age. O-A-R-D, Ord. With all of that tectonic activity that I described last time, remember the fountains of the deep being volcanic, magma, that would, if it's on a global scale, would warm up the oceans. And it doesn't take hundreds of degrees, just a few degrees of warming of the oceans. What happens when you warm water? What's it? You have a greater tendency of what? Evaporation. Evaporation is accelerated with even slight warming of water. So you have more water vapor as a result of warmer oceans. And if you have more water vapor in the atmosphere, then that leads to what? More precipitation, more snow, more rain. More snow will produce colder summers. And colder summers... Harsher winters. Harsher winters. What I just saw in his talk on Tuesday at Pope and, and he was... On video? That, he was there. Video. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, he, he says that there was a lot of vulcanization, his theory... Before. Was, um, well... And during the flood. Afterwards. Oh, and afterwards, okay. Degrees, by the way, yeah. But it's significant in terms of climatology. Mm-hmm. So colder summers produce glaciers, thus the ice age. That's in simplicity his theory, and you expanded a little bit on that. Very good. So the physical effects: geophysics is radically different, tectonics is radically di- different, climatology is radically different. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back, and I'll give you some more. Okay, uh, the point I'm making here is the world after the Genesis flood is radically different than the world before. And we looked at geophysics, we looked at tectonics, we looked at climatology, and these are just some of the major areas. We talked about oceanography, because if there was just one continent, then all of the oceans are different, and all of oceanography is different. And if there was a Genesis flood, the content of the oceans would be radically different as well because you have a lot of mixing, a lot of settling, a lot of different uh, concentrations of materials. So all of oceanography would be radically different after the Genesis flood than it was before. Certainly the boundaries are, are totally different. Probably was salt water after the Genesis flood, but not to the salinity that we have today because there's been an accumulation over the years. You know what orogeny is? The study of what? Mountains, mountain building. All of the mountains that you see today are different than the, the mountains of the past. 
that Psalm 104, if you still have it open, whose turn is it to read? I can't remember. Mark, I think it's your turn. If you read that, I think it's about verse 5 and 6, it talks about mountains being raised up and valleys being laid down. And it's talking in a context of the Genesis flood. He put the waters over the earth like a blanket in that context. He's ta- that's a Genesis flood. In other words, it's universal. It covers everything. Do you have it, Mark? What verse is it? About five. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not tire forever and ever. You covered it uh, with the deep as with a garment. Okay, the deep is the, are oceans like a garment. In other words, you put a garment on your bed, you cover the whole thing. You don't leave, leave it unmade. Keep reading. The waters were standing above the mountains. That's Genesis 8. Remember where the mountains, and in fact, by 15 cubits, waters above the mountains. So the mountains were lower in elevation before the flood. Keep reading. And your rebuke, they fled. That's the receding of the waters. That's Genesis 8. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place established for them. Okay, God establishing the present-day mountains and the present-day valleys would be where the waters would, in fact, form oceans. Make sense? And perhaps it might be an allusion to valleys on continents as well. So you have a lot of displacement, a lot of movement, a lot of tectonic activity, volcanism, and earthquake issues immediately after the flood. So all of the high mountains, the even the Sandias today are obviously much higher than what the mountains before the flood would have been. And Mount Everest and all of those obviously were formed after the flood. So all of orogeny is radically different today. That's why you find fossils on the tops of virtually every mountain. How do they get there? Well, they weren't down there. When they rose up, they took whatever sediment was there lifted that up as well with all of the fossils in it. Physics. Constants changed. What about gravity? You never mentioned it. I don't know about gravity. It may have been more stable. I don't know. What I'm giving you here are things that are very obvious that the text tells us. The text doesn't say anything. So, certain constants have changed. And you might read the results of that book that ICR put out on that big uh, science project that they did, where they believe perhaps a lot of radiometric constants were changed as a result of the Genesis flood. They're not constant. Rates of decay of radioactive material. Yes. Mm -hmm. One area of optics that the Bible specifically talks about, obviously, rainbow, that's an optical... Production deals with optics. If you study it physically, what forms the the rainbow is light goes into a droplet, obviously billions of droplets all at once to form the spectrum. It's refracted inside each little drop. So it's refracted inside, bounced, and reflected inside and then refracted out, and, and then the spectrum is separated as you visually see all of this taking place before you. The biblical text seems to indicate that none of this 
physics was actually in play before the Genesis flood because now we have for the first time a, a rainbow. Yeah, there was color. Mm, I think Noah lived in color. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so light from the sun comes, and like I said, it enters each droplet, and the physics of the droplets they have to be the right size to produce a rainbow. And it's reflected inside and then refracted out such that the viewer sees the entire spectrum. This chart kind of gives you the kind of the physical parameters there. So, physics, constants change, and that might be an example of one area in optics where you have some physical changes in terms of water tension and the size of water droplets, that sort of thing. Uh, a very clear thing, and I leave it for last because it's a little more dramatic, is anthropology in terms of longevity of life. Remember I told you clearly when we looked at the, the genealogies, I gave you the average age of humans before the flood? Well, let's take a look at that. Let me kind of explain what is produced if you plot the ages don't worry about all of this. This is just an example so that you, if you don't have a math and physics background, if you want to know what, this is what's called an exponential decay curve. And you can find it in different areas of physics. I just found this on the Internet. So don't worry about this decay curve for trivium. What I'm illustrating by this chart is an exponential decay curve looks like this. It starts off at a high point and it drops and then it kind of evens out such that it kind of stops dropping and kind of stabilizes. That's an exponential decay curve. There's a lot of things that follow an exponential decay curve in physics, just to, and, in, and also in engineering. The point I'm making here is if you plot the longevity of the post-flood patriarchs, one of the best curve fits is an exponential decay curve, such that Today, people generally live around 70, 80 years. We might increase that by five or six years in 10 years or whatever. But basically, it's an exponential decay curve. Something very rapid seems to have taken place as a result of the flood, such that the ages of mankind have stabilized at a lower level. The pre-flood average, 912.2, that takes Enoch out. That other figure, I think I included Enoch, which is an anomalous number. So this is your better number, 912.2 average age before, and it's flat. Well, it's, you know, it's relatively flat. Afterwards, now you have this curve starting with Noah, Shem, Arpachshad, etc., to Joseph, so that now Joseph lives not much longer than people in the 21st century. So the ages are from 777 years to 969 years. This obviously would be Methuselah. One thing Klopp does, another creationist say that this is probably not an accident. There's some phenomenon took place that we don't know. Let me give you another illustration of what is probably taking place. We probably have some physical phenomenon before the flood, and if you kind of superimpose these and think of these as the ages, before you have a steady state, steady environment before the flood, that environment is radically different than the environment or the steady state that is reached after. An illustration you can use in terms of a change in states, 
You can have a glass of water, or glass of water, it's at a constant temperature. Basically, it'll remain the temperature of the room, okay? So you can measure that for 10 hours, let's say. And it's 71 degrees, 70 degrees, 69, 70, you know, basically 70 degrees. You put ice in it, and now it's going to rapidly cool the water, and it's going to cool the water at an exponential decay. And then eventually, when all of the ice melts, then it's going to be at a lower steady state. That's kind of an example, kind of easy to visualize. So you have this phenomenon in science, basically, in nature. More than likely, we had a steady state environment before the flood. Something happened as a result of the flood, and we don't know what. But it was so radically different, and I've given you evidence of things that tell us things were different before than they were after, such that it took some time for a new steady state to be arrived, and that may account for the difference in the ages post-flood patriarchs. So we are down the line here. The Noahic covenant would be after the flood, and God is promising that he's going to stabilize the universe, basically, such as there's not going to be another flood. So, back to Second Peter. Mark, you want to keep reading? We left off. Why don't you read verse 6 again? The world at that time was under the curse, in verse 6, and then what happened? Second Peter 3, 6, and then also, after you read that, read 3, 7. Verse 6 says, Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Stop there. That's the Noahic flood. And notice the word world there. That's the cosmos. So you could almost think of it as more than the world. You could think of it as the entire cosmos was destroyed. And some scientists believe there's some evidence that something happened in the at the Genesis Flood that affected the entire universe. Read the next verse. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Present heavens and earth, we are living in that present heavens and earth environment that's under the Noahic Covenant, is the point I'm making here. And there's going to be a radical change in the future. And Second Peter tells us a little bit about it as well. This is Peter's argument against those that say everything has been going on the same as it's always been. Why do you think there's going to be a radical change in the future with a second coming of your so-called Messiah? There's other passages that tell us about this Noahic, what I would describe as a fixed order. Secularists call this laws of nature. We observe that God has fixed the order. Jeremiah 31-35. Now this is an interesting passage to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah writes on the verge of the nation being destroyed, taken into, ba into Babylonian captivity. So if you were a Jew in that day, you might think everything is over. And what God is assuring the Israelites, I'm not done with you. Yes, you're going to be judged. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, you're going to be in captivity for many years. Yes, nothing's going to be the same with you, nation of Israel. But what does he say? Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the what? Fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. In other words, there is a fixed order that God fixed with the Noahic covenant. There's a stability. 
There's a stability that he has established. Who stirs up the sea so that it was it, its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. In other words, he is sovereign over the created realm. The next verse, if this fixed order departs from before me. In other words, if everything goes away, if it, it unravels, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me. In other words, he's saying, if the fixed order continues, you are as secure as the laws of nature. If something should happen and everything just went away and that fixed order were disrupted, then there's the possibility of me ceasing from being, you ceasing from being a nation before me. This is designed to give them assurance as long as the sun rises, as long, long as the moon remains in this path, as long as nature responds as it always has been, God is assuring us that he's going to keep us as his people, even though we are in Babylon. He says it twice. Notice in Jeremiah 33, 25. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day, what is what covenant for day is that? That's the Noahic covenant. If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns, same thing, fixed patterns of the heavens and the earth I have not established, next verse, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. In other words, everything's going to stay the same. Well, he's just saying he really is creative. Yes. I mean, it's just absurd that the world falls apart. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a pretty good promise. Pretty good. And it's dependent on this covenant, the Noahic covenant. Job says in 38.33, God's saying, do you know the ordinances? In other words, if you study nature, you can see laws of nature. They're not really laws of nature. They're ordinances of God. God is establishing the stability. The ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth. God establishes the natural realm. Back to our radical changes chart here imposed on our world history timeline there. We have the creation, we have the fall. As a result of fall, we have the curse, we have the flood, and we have the establishment of the Noahic covenant such that we have stability and the Bible promises a radical change in the future. That's Revelation. Book of Revelation and the Old Testament prophets. The curse continues, and it'll continue. Remember we talked about God will be dealing with sin and evil, but he will not remove the curse. The curse is going to be affected by this radical change. It still will not be removed. In fact, uh, we can put it as a dotted line because parts of it, people still die in the millennial kingdom. Right. This is actually the millennial kingdom right here, a thousand years. Put refreshing in here. Peter describes that in Acts chapter 3. That's where the perfect time of the perfect. Hmm? That's where Christ rule is, but it's governmental and it's the perfect. Right. And that's our last point on our foundations for government. Yeah, no, that's good. This is a special time where nature is affected. Isaiah describes it in some detail. The lion laying down with the lamb. You wouldn't do that today unless you had a lion that you were interested in feeding that day. 
<laughs> so, zoology is going to be affected during the Millennial Kingdom. And it talks about other physical effects as well. Radical changes. So, we're still talking about science here. I'm still giving you foundations for science. The next point on our uh, Colossians 1.17, another point in terms of science, he, Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in him, what? All things hold together. In other words, laws of nature don't maintain the universe. That's a secular concept. Jesus Christ maintains those ordinances that God established with the Noahic covenant. Make sense? Yeah. Well, secular people just believe secular. Most Christians believe that. Yeah. Yeah. But they believe that because that's just the way that it has always been. (laughs) Well, because they've never come to my class as a reader. They make the assumption (laughs) that, well, there's a constant Yeah, and that's why we're having this class, is because your thinking is affected by the public schools, by the university, by unbelievers, by the culture that tells us this is what science is all about. I'm giving you a new and a different foundation for science. So Colossians, all things are hold together by he, by Jesus Christ. He maintains the Noahic covenant. Hebrews 1.3, similarly, and it's referring to he again, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. The same word that spoke everything into being is the same word that he maintains things. Rhema there. Rhema. So, the universe is upheld. If Jesus Christ fell asleep at the wheel, all molecules would probably go into dispersion or go random. Everything would cease. He upholds all things. So your next, number seven, everything is upheld by Christ. That's part of science. That's your science foundation. Upheld by Christ. Not constants. Not laws of nature. And it also says in that verse, controlled by his word, not law. In fact, you ought to ask the secularist, if there are laws of nature, who is the lawgiver? Who's the guy that made these laws, Where would, what legislature passed these laws of nature? Now, I think we could describe them as laws because we know the lawgiver, the law creator. So number eight, controlled by his word. And you still have, uh, Mark, you still have Second Peter. Why don't you read the last part there? Let's see, you read, yeah, skip to ten. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Wow. That's pretty radical, isn't it? That is even more radical than the Genesis flood. There's a future radical time. This is basically the end of the created realm. And what God is promising in the Noahic covenant, keep a stable universe until this point. And this is basically the end of history here. Alright? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be holy in? In other words, this is the implications we ought to draw. Read verse 12 also. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Okay. That's not the second coming. 
The day of God is after the millennial kingdom. This is the end of history. This is the end of the universe. When they say the day will come, in Revelation 21, we have a new heavens and a new earth. That's the eternal state. It's glorious. It's after judgment and destruction. So there actually is a big bang taught in scripture. It's not at the beginning. It's the big bang is at the end. <laughs> All right. You got it? Okay. Here's the end of my chart here. There's a period of refreshing. And at the end of this period of refreshing, the curse is finally lifted. And we go into an eternal state. And the big bang at the end is the end of world history that Peter describes. Now, God kind of gives us a feel that he is sovereign over all things when we speak in the Bible about miracles, where he can radically change constants on a localized level. These are the miracles during the time of Moses. These are the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. So during prophetic times, there were miracles there. These are the miracles of Christ. These are the miracles in Acts of the disciples. There'll be miracles preceding the second coming during the Great Tribulation, where God gives us a feel that, you know, he's sovereign over the created realm. So there are radical changes. There's no uniformitarianism. I gave you this chart. Did I give you this chart? This is a Charlie Clough chart. I just kind of simplified it, kind of made it more understandable. If you plot what you can observe and what science can deal with in terms of space from the very, very tiny atoms and even smaller than atoms to galaxies and whatever beyond galaxies, if you plot over time and what we can study and know, we are very, very limited. Our human understanding is very, very limited. That's the point that Charlie's making. And what this little box stands for is what any scientist can do by direct observation. B.O. is direct observation. That's what he can be certain of, what he can know, what he can test scientifically. In fact, the box is very, it's much smaller. It's out of scale. And if you study what others have observed in the past, this is the testimony of history. And the further back you go, the, the less there is. That's why I have a truncated trapezoid, I guess, that's what that is. That is the limits of human knowledge and human understanding. Everything outside of that are deductions beyond what we can observe, even using aids or microscopes. Anything beyond that, deductions. Can't test beyond some certain limits. Anything before that, that's just conjecture. We have even less certainty. And yet the evolution is projecting all the way back, all right, to the Big Bang that he thinks is at the beginning. He's going to be surprised to see the one at the end. And what can man do in terms, this is today, what can we do in terms of the future? Can you be certain what's going to happen other than what God has promised? No. So that's totally conjecture as well. So the point being is scientists are limited, even though they might give you a different impression. Well, our last foundation stone for science you need to go to the scriptures to interpret nature as well, not rationalism. Revelation interprets the natural realm. That's why Russ Humphreys, John Baumgartner, and by the way, what I'm giving you with the flood is John Baumgartner. He's the one that came up with the theory that most 
creationists are accepting that fountains of the deep theory that I gave you. I'll come back to that. John Baumgartner, who used to live in Albuquerque, works used to work at the Los Alamos National Labs. That's his theory. He came up with it. Russ Humphreys, world-class physicist. John Bob Barner, geophysicist, Ph.D. They both start with scripture before they do any research. What does the Bible teach about this phenomenon? Because that gives them the parameters and the foundation. And they basically would agree with everything I've got on this. So are you saying that in eternity, that's it, no mankind won't no, no, we, we're in eternity. These are phys- the physical realm is destroyed, is what I'm saying. Second Peter three, physical realm, and Revelation twenty one doesn't. It's not clear as to there's kind of a different physical realm. It just doesn't. Not clear. So the characteristics of the flood we saw: it's decreed, it's unconditional, it's universal. In other words, it affects the whole universe. It's gracious, it's physical, and it's permanent. That's a Noahic covenant. Permanent. Seems to... Now, it's modified some with the second coming in a radical way, but it's still a stable environment that is under God's control. And then we have a little short piece. I'm not going to take too much time. In fact, we might come back to this, Genesis 9, 18 through 24. We have the decline of Noah and his family. I'll probably come back to it to set the stage for the next major event, and we'll look at that next week. All right? So we can conclude this portion of the Genesis Flood discussion with uh, this statement. The judge of all will ultimately complete his separation of evil. The Genesis Flood is one of the major first stages of God dealing with evil in time and in history. But we can be assured because of the Genesis Flood that he's going to bring ultimate dealing with, with evil and he's going to ultimately separate that. And by the way, that final separation is what Second Peter talks about, Second Peter 3. We've completed the portion that deals with exegesis of the biblical text. Now, we didn't go into a lot of detail in many of the texts, but I did give you, uh, in some case, at least a summary of Genesis 6 through 9. And we drew those several implications from those passages that are very, very far-reaching. In fact, I think if you really don't understand these early chapters of Genesis, you, you really don't understand history or, in fact, even the physical realm. So we've completed that portion. What I'd like to do is spend the rest of the time in the apologetic portion. And what I want to demonstrate is from science so that you have a scientific basis to defend the, not only the historicity of the Genesis Flood, but the reality of it, the reality of it. So we're going to go to our science and scripture portion or apologetic portion. And in our culture, there's this big debate or this big division between what we're beginning to describe as those that believe in a Genesis Flood or those in the sciences there's a growing science called flood geology. Still a very small, small minority in terms of all of geology, but there are some creationists that are being described as those that believe in flood geology. They are taking a more biblical approach, taking believing in what the Bible teaches, using what the Bible teaches to set the parameters for their science and their study. 
So there is growing information. I'm going to give you what is available at least up to more recent time here. The debate is between those that believe that there was, in fact, a Genesis flood and the overwhelming majority of geologists today. And geologists today, there's a branch of geology that's called historical geology, and obviously historical geology does what? Tries to reconstruct the history of the earth, particularly the history of the geological layers. The argument is, one of the arguments is uniformitarianism. In fact, historical geology has used uniformitarianism. That also is the roots of where it began with Lyle in the late or early 1800s, late 1700s in that time, when an attack on the biblical worldview began in terms of the Genesis flood. So the question is, was there really a Genesis flood, or are the historical geologists correct when they say there's no evidence for a Genesis flood? There's absolutely no evidence for a Genesis flood. And as a result, what has happened is the church has been intimidated because the historical geologist has all of this scientific data, and the church says, well, you know, we're not geologists, we don't know, so, you know, how can we refute that? Maybe the Genesis flood was local. And the viewpoint of the church in general is, well, we want to believe the Bible. Remember I told you the same thing happened with creation? We want to believe that God is the creator, but scientists seem to indicate that evolution is true. Well, can we combine the two? The church has done the same thing when it comes to Genesis flood, and rather than believe in a universal flood, that's why I've emphasized it so much, in fact, the biblical scriptural evidence tells us that the flood was universal. The church says, well, maybe we can stretch the language and kind of make it speak in terms of a local flood. And the flood only took place in Mesopotamia. To kind of not look stupid in the eyes of historical geology. First of all, let me qualify this. We as creationists, we don't have a problem with most geology. What we have a problem with is the reconstructing of ancient history, that branch of geology that is called historical geology. We have a huge problem with them. What I want to give you is, this is like a seven-hour lecture. I'm going to try and condense it down. What I'm going to try and give you is where the historical geologist not only goes wrong, but give you the evidence that I think is overwhelming for a Genesis flood and for a universal flood, not a local flood. So what we're going to look at is the scientific evidence. I gave you the Genesis 6 through 9 evidence or the biblical evidence. In fact, it goes even beyond that. Jesus believed in the account of Genesis and believed in a universal flood. So it extends into the New Testament. So let's concentrate on the scientific evidence, and I've kind of tried to condense this, and I'm going to go rapidly. If it's too fast, just slow me down. I use this slide mainly with kids. If you can think of what damage a little bit of water over lots of time can do, and I illustrate that by telling them, you know, when rivers go downstream, they cut valleys, and it takes a long time to maybe cut a valley. A little bit of water through erosion. But you can get the same effect if you have what? Lots of water over a little bit of time. So this is kind of a simple way of looking at this same debate. 
The historical geologist said rivers flowing at their rates today, eroding continents at the rates that erode today, take those rates, project them back, and you can come up with an earth that's billions of years old. In other words, it took many thousands, many billions of years to carve the Grand Canyon. And it also took a lot of years to lay down all of those layers that the canyon has been carved out from. Well, that's the view of historical geology. I'm going to argue that lots of water over a short period of time, like a Genesis flood event, can produce the same phenomenon that we observe today. So there's a better interpretation as to not only how the Grand Canyon is formed, but also to explain how all of the geological layers all over the Earth were laid down. So that's kind of a simple way of looking at it. And the point we're going to make is cataclysmic events produced the environment that we observe today. And we looked at the fountains of the deep from Genesis, and I gave you the explanation last time of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge, if you take all of the water out of the Atlantic Ocean, North America on the left, Spain and Europe over here, North Africa, this is what the bottom of the Atlantic would look like, and nobody contests this. In other words, there's no geologist that says, well, this is imaginary. This is, this is from their work. This is actually a mountain range. It's called the Mid-Atlantic Range, and it's all produced by volcanic material. It's all volcanic. And the theory, this is John Baumgartner who came up with this theory, and when he was producing this theory, he produced a finite element computer program to simulate a worldwide flood. And while he's working at Los Alamos, at that time, they would not permit him to use their computers during the day to do his research. The reason for it is because the capacity of those computers could not manage his program and the work that was being done. So he had to come in at like 3 in the morning and run his program in order to, to, to produce it. So this is a huge program that he he produced to basically simulate a Genesis flood and different parameters that he fed in, and he came up with a flood theory, and it's also based on some of the evidence that you can see on the ground like this as to what took place. His theory is, and others have kind of added to it, this would re represent magma from below the crust of the earth, producing that mid-Atlantic range such that this material broke the sea bottoms, and once it penetrated the bottom of the sea, you have the ocean floor exposed to hot magma, and what we said last time, when that happens, you're going to have a lot of steam produced because you have very hot material exposed to water that's going to basically evaporate it instantly such that when you have magma coming to the surface and actually extending on the surface as it begins to spread out, large quantities of steam produced. So the fountains of the deep of Genesis 7:11 are probably not fountains of water. That was the old traditional interpretation of that passage. But there's nothing in the text that requires that it be water. It just says fountains of the deep. And the theory before was there had to have been subterranean reservoirs of water that came to the surface to produce the waters of the flood. Tremendous amounts of water. Well, this theory says the fountains of the deep are 
were not water, but the fountains are actually liquid rock or magma. Uh, 